I want to entitle this message, New Insights or the Same Old Nonsense. New Insights or the Same Old Nonsense. And, and here's kind of the question that's driving this message here this morning. We've been celebrating the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is risen. But the question you've got you to gotta ask is, why believe that is true? I'm sure there are some people in this auditorium that uh, maybe suspect that it's just some kind of a, a religious myth, a religious legend. Uh, it's just a story that has been told and people get all pumped up about it, but it's not historically true. Why think it's true? I mean, come on. Asking, you're asking me to believe that there was a man who was dead and then rose from the dead. Now, every dead person I've ever seen has stayed dead. What about you? I thought so. And so now you're asking me to believe that there's an exception to that rule, that law of nature. Why should I believe that? And to complicate factors even a little bit more, there is, as many of you know, the last couple weeks, a lot of talk about the gospel of Judas. Gospel of Judas. And, and the spin that's being put on this, and this happens Almost every Easter, there's a new thing the media hits on that challenges uh, the Christian faith, and it becomes a, a point of controversy, and they use it to sell magazines and papers and get people to watch specials on program like tonight at 9 o'clock. There's one on the Gospel of Judas. And, uh, and the spin that's usually put on that is something like this. Uh, well, you know, the Gospel of Judas has a very different picture of Jesus and a very different picture of Judas because he's actually a hero in this Gospel. And, and there's a lot of other Gospels out there, these Gnostic Gospels. Some of you have heard of the Gnostic Gospels, and, and, and they're on the same par with the Gospels that are in the Bible, what are called the canonical Gospels. And uh, so uh, how do you know what's true? Which Gospel are you supposed to believe? I mean, the spin is that the church just sort of arbitrarily selected the ones they like the best, and now we're supposed to just believe those are true and the other ones aren't. And so a lot of people are having a lot of questions, a lot of concerns. And I want to try to separate fact from fiction here this morning to get clear on this. For non-believers, perhaps, to persuade them to put their faith in Jesus Christ and to believe the resurrection is uh, uh, true. And for, for those who are already believers, to equip you to deal with people who have these kind of questions. So I'm going to be talking kind of about the Gospel of Judas. The passage I want to read doesn't sound like a resurrection passage at all, but it really is. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Ah. But the time will come, Paul says, when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears, love that metaphor, their itching ears want to hear. Tell me something I want to hear. Man, that's prevalent in this culture. If you don't get what you want to hear, you go find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, kingdom people, Keep your head in all situations. Nefe, the, 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 the meaning of that is just stay sober-minded in all situations. Stay rational. Don't get caught up in hysteria and fads and frenzies and, and, and new claims and all those sorts of things. If ever this prophetic passage had any application to a culture, it has it with ours. Where people are just chasing after all sorts of stories and the latest and the newest thing that came out. Here's another passage that is more about the resurrection. I'll be getting to it in a little bit here. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead, Paul says. The body, is sown, the body that is sown is perishable. By sown, he simply means planted in the ground. It's perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it's raised, praise God, in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Father, let this word come alive and do all that you want it to do. Open our eyes to see the reality, the truth, and the transforming power of your resurrected life in Jesus' name. 
So in the media, you've, most of you have heard this gospel of Judas. Just a frenzy out there, all over the place. Uh, here's what the New York Times has said about the gospel of Judas. It, it, by the way, the copy we have is a Coptic version. It's dated 300 A.D. Um, and, here, and the central controversial piece is that it makes Judas out to be a hero for betraying uh, Jesus. He really didn't betray Jesus. He was carrying out, according to this gospel, Jesus' plan. So the New York Times says, an early Christian manuscript, no, it calls it Christian, including the only known text of what is known as the Gospel of Judas, has surfaced after 1,700 years. The text gives new insights, new insights, into the relationship of Jesus and the disciple who, betray, who betrayed him. Must be a historically accurate piece then, if it gives new insights into the historical Jesus as relationship to this disciple. The discoveries have proved deeply troubling for many believers. The Gospel of Judas portrays Judas Iscariot not as a betrayer of Jesus, but as his most favored disciple and willing collaborator. Now that's all fine, well, and good. It wouldn't bother me at all, except for the fact that people believe this stuff. Uh, the people not knowing any better hear what's on the, 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 the New York Times, Washington Post, or what have you. It's going to be on a new special here tonight. And uh, they're understandably confused by it all. I had 17 emails in the last two weeks of people asking me questions about the Gospel of Judas. My neighbor, I have a neighbor, a wonderful guy, uh, uh, for the last three years since we moved there, I've been trying to gently, you know, share Christ with him. Uh, he is really opposed to anything to do with religion. So I've been telling him this isn't about religion, uh, but he just doesn't want to hear very much. Uh, the other day, my dog was barking wildly out in the uh, yard, and I went out there, and he was barking at my neighbor. For some reason, my dog, uh, li li little Max, uh, loves people, but just doesn't like this guy. He's never, I don't know what the deal is. So he's barking crazy. I go out there, and I shut the dog up, and, and then uh, my, my neighbor jumps the fence and comes over and says, Hey, what do you think about this gospel of Judas? Because he knows I'm a Christian and, and, and stuff. He goes, what do you think about the gospel of Judas? Whoa, it turns out that uh, your Bible isn't just the only book that's got these gospels. Gospel of Judas, there's all these other works that are out there, and they're all kind of, you know, on, on a par with one another, but they have very different Jesuses and very different Judases and very different gods and very different beliefs. And who's to know which one is right? And I tried to, you know, share a little bit of my perspective, kind of what I'm going to share now. Uh, it didn't go very far, to be honest with you, but it really, it really you know, shows how the culture right now is in the grip of this question. So I want to talk about this. Let's talk about the Gospel of Judas. The first part of this message is going to be uh, kind of a teaching thing. This is what we do at Woodland Hills Church. We believe in worshiping God with all of our mind. Sometimes that requires sort of deep thinking. It's not all supposed to be emotional, rah-rah. We're going to get kind of serious with some facts. I want to set the record straight here. And, and, and give some, some solid teaching here. First thing I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about early church history. And I want to break it into four stages, just so we get an understanding here. For, uh, stage number one, the canonical gospels, and the word canonical means belongs to the canon. And the word canon in Latin means rule. And, and, and so the, the, the canonical gospels are those that the church decided should rule our faith. They're the ones that are in the Bible. So when I say canonical gospels, those are the four gospels that are in the Bible. Other canonical writings are the writings of Paul and, and those sorts of things. The canonical writings were written and collected in the first century. Beginning around 49, Paul writes his first letter, and it goes on to about 100 A.D. I am very convinced I can make a compelling case that all of the biblical writings occurred before 70 A.D. I'm not going to get into it now, though. But even on a liberal dating, they were all written uh, before 100 A.D. And the canon... The rule was made official in the mid-2nd century. Now, now, here's what I want us to see. 
The early Christian community was a rather close-knit community. They had different perspectives on certain things. They had some issues to work out for sure, but they were in fundamental agreement about who Jesus was and about the gospel story. They, say, they shared the same oral tradition. They were rather tightly networked. Um, and uh, uh, when, when, when an apostle or uh, someone uh, that was part of the apostolic circle would write a letter like Paul or Mark or Luke or John, they would write a letter or write a gospel, it was received by this community. In fact, Paul tells some of his audience to make copies of this and pass it out to the other churches. So there, there was a body of people in a hostile environment in the ancient world. These, these were Christians. And uh, they shared these writings in common. There wasn't much controversy about these writings early on. It was just accepted. A few letters had, people had doubts about if they really came from one in the apostolic uh, circles, for example, the book of Hebrews, because it wasn't, uh, you know, we don't know who wrote it. But on the whole, the canon was simply accepted. Now, in the mid-second century, there came along a guy named Marcion, and, or Martian. It's spelled just like Martian. And uh, he was a Christian, quote-unquote, preacher, but he was an anti-Semite, which means he hated Jews. And so he rejected the whole Old Testament and said it was of the devil. And then he cut out all the parts of the New Testament that cast any positive light on the Jews. He just made up his own Bible. So the church, he was a very charismatic preacher apparently because a lot of people followed him. And so the church had to guard, you know, guard the sheep. And so they had to put in writing for the first time, what is our official canon? Here are the books to follow. Here are the books not to follow. You don't tamper with these books. And that occurred around the mid-2nd century. The first recorded list we have of the, the canonical books, it's called the Muratorian Canon. And it was produced around 180 AD. We have a copy of this. We've discovered it through archaeology. Now, this is very important because there's a lot of buzz out there uh, by Dan Brown through the Da Vinci Code and some others saying that the church invented the canon in the 4th century. And it is just a bunch of baloney. It's nonsense. It's crazy. Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. Great novel, by the way. It's a good read. Totally off when it comes to anything theological. And the movie's coming out, so keep that in mind when you go to the movie, if you go to the movie. But uh, he says that the Council of Nicaea was where Constantine gave us, gave us the Bible. And that's when we supposedly suppressed the Gospel of Mary and all these other kind of things. That is so ludicrous, it's not funny. Take anyone who's got you know, two, week, two weeks in a freshman course in college on church history, and you can show that that's not the case. The Council of Nicaea wasn't even about the canon. It was about the deity of Christ. <sighs> okay. <laughs> so the canon was, was, was accepted early on. It, it was no, no, no real dispute, and it was made official in the mid-second century. Second stage. In the second century, mid-second century, a, a movement exploded. It's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism explodes in the second century, and some Gnostics incorporate some Christian ideas. Now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And this, this movement is called Gnosticism because the one thing the movement had in common was that they all believed that they received secret knowledge, esoteric teachings. It wasn't like there's one group called the Gnostics. It was a widespread movement. It was very diverse. It was very analogous to the New Age movement today. It's more of a genre of spirituality than it is a set of beliefs. So it's a very diverse movement. Um, and um, the one thing they have in common is that they believe they get secret revelations about the ethereal realms and, 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 and things of that sort. They wrote a lot. They wrote a lot of gospels and a lot of letters. And what they did, they were very eclectic. 
they would borrow from everybody. They borrow from this teacher and that teacher and not really worry too much whether it's consistent or not. They, they, you know, they, they'd borrow from this religion and that religion. And some, not all, but some Gnostics took some Christian ideas and wove it into their whole metaphysical uh, framework. Usually they would see Jesus, portray Jesus as the giver of secret knowledge or one of the inside disciples uh, or someone in his entourage was this one who really got what Jesus was about and passed on the secret tradition of Jesus. So in the Gospel of Mary, it's Mary Magdalene. And the Gospel of Judas, it's Judas. And there's other candidates that are, that are out there as well. And they wrote a lot of stuff. The writings are rather bizarre. All right? Um, I, I, I'm going to read for you a snippet of the Gospel of Judas. Especially for those who maybe are inclined to think that maybe this gospel really has more credibility than, uh, than any of the canonical gospels. Uh, I, I want you just to hear this and ask yourself how credible this is. It really gives a, a good uh, uh, sample of the flavor of Gnosticism. This is how they always sound. So the gospel of Judas has Judas say to Jesus, I know who you are and where you are from. You are from the immortal realm of Barbello. Barbello was... Uh, Apparently an immortal realm that people believed in. <laughs> they always have these names for different levels of heaven and all this kind of stuff. A great luminous cloud appeared. Jesus said, let an angel come into being as my attendant. A great angel, the enlightened divine self-generated. And there's another thing about Gnosticism. They always have these kind of funky names for these ascended beings. And this particular ascended being is called self-generated. Of course, if Jesus called him into being, one wonders how come he's self-generated. But that's not what's concerning me right now. Because of him, self-generated, four other angels came into being from another cloud, and they became attendants for the angelic self-generated. The self-generated said, let, and the dot, dot, dot just means that here the text is too corrupted to read or it's missing altogether. Let come into being, dot, dot, dot. And he created the first luminary to reign over him, and myriads without number came into being. That is how he created the rest of the enlightened eons. Eons is another realm of of ascended beings. Uh, Adamus was the first luminous cloud that no angel has ever seen among all those who are called God. Uh, in Gnosticism, typically, there's a lot of different gods. He made 72 luminaries appear in the incorruptible generation. The 72 luminaries themselves made 360 luminaries appear in the incorruptible generation. The 12 eons and 12 luminaries, you're getting ready to run the aisles, aren't you? Constitute their father with six heavens from each eon so that there's 72 heavens and 72 luminaries. And for each, and for each of them, five luminaries for a total of 360 firmaments. And so it goes and so it goes, but I've been done inflicting this on you. Uh, this is the, the flavor of Gnosticism. It's really into the metaphysical realm and eons and firmaments and ascended masters and self-generated emanations and things of that sort. That's the flavor of Gnosticism. And Jesus is, 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 is usually plugged in there somewhere. In this case, he comes from the immortal realm of Barbello. And, and the reason Judas is portrayed as a hero is because most Gnostics, in fact, all Gnostics, believes that, ma that matter was evil and so the physical body is evil. And so Jesus says to Judas, you are going to free me from my prison. And that's a good thing. And so Judas is portrayed as a hero rather than a villain. Okay, stage number three. Christian leaders respond to Gnosticism. And this starts in the late 2nd century and it goes on to the 5th century, though Gnosticism was by that point uh, largely died out. But uh, the church fathers knew about all these works. In fact, almost all the works we find today... Are, are mentioned by early church fathers, especially Irenaeus and Hippolytus and others. Irenaeus mentions the Gospel of Judas, and he's writing around 180 A.D. And so they know about these works. They know about Gnosticism, and they write about these books. They tell us what, what they're saying or whatever. 
they critique these books. And the critique always goes along these lines. These people don't know what they're talking about. These people are making this all up. These people, there's no history to what they're saying. These people don't stand in the line of, of, of the, the, the tradition of the church. They're not insiders on this thing. Uh, there's nothing historical here. It's just so much nonsense. And so throughout history, this leads to the fourth, fourth point, the fourth stage. Modern archaeologists have been discovering these ancient Gnostic texts. Uh, we've known about these works throughout history, nothing new here. But in the last 60 years especially, we've been discovering them for a variety of reasons. We have access to more, and archaeology is better now. And So in 1945, for example, we discovered what's called the Nag Hammadi Library, which includes more than a dozen of these Gnostic works. And so you read about the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Judas, and the Gospel of Philip, and the Gospel of Truth, and all these other kind of things. There's nothing new in any of this. What's new, however, is that, especially in the last several decades, Whenever one of these works is, is discussed or translated or whatever, you've got a certain group of liberal scholars who get a hold of the li li liberal tending media and they make a frenzy out of this. Here's new insights. Uh, you know, this really revamps everything. And they portray these gospels as having the same historical credibility as the canonical gospels and it confuses a bunch of people. I want to suggest to you that these works don't offer us any new insights. Uh, very little in it can, can be uh, given any degree of probability of being historically true. It's not new insights, it's rather just the same old nonsense. And so I'm going to give you four reasons why I, I, I argue these, that this is the same old nonsense. And in doing that, I will contrast it with the canonical gospels, which now taps into the resurrection, because we rely on these documents for, for our belief in the resurrection. Four points here. Number one, the Gnostic Gospels are written 150 to 300 years after the fact. There's a few that are er a little bit earlier than that, but they're all late. Whereas all the New Testament texts, the Gospels and the Epistles and others, they're all written within one or two generations of Jesus. And that puts the New Testament documents. I'm not talking about inspiration here or anything like that. I'm just looking at this as a historian. These documents are an entirely different category, if for no other reason than because they're much closer to the events that they record than the, the, the Gnostic Gospels. Number two, the Gnostic Gospels have no connection with the early Jesus community, whereas Paul and the Gospel authors all write as insiders of the early uh, Jesus community. Here's why this is important. Uh, in the ancient world, especially ancient Judaism, it was what's called an oral culture which means most people couldn't read or write. Writing didn't play that big of a role. And so they relied a lot on oral traditions. And communities passed on oral traditions. My friend and fellow overseer Paul Eddy and I uh, have a book coming out next year called The Jesus Legend, where we did a three-year research on oral traditions in oral communities. And here's what we discovered. And we weren't the ones who discovered this. There's others, ethnographers, who have really proven this. But in oral communities, oral traditions are, there's evidence of it being passed on sometimes for centuries with hardly any change whatsoever. If, if, if the person telling the oral tradition ever begins to veer off of the tradition, the community checks it in order to keep it accurate. All the people who write the Gospels and write the Epistles stand inside this oral community passing on this oral tradition, so there's a line of continuity there that we have every reason to believe is reliable. The Gnostic writers are pagans. They're outsiders. They're not in on this tradition, and so they're going to be much less likely to know what they're talking about. The Gospel, the canonical Gospels are in a totally different category than the Gnostic Gospels. Point number three. The Gnostic Gospels reflect no interest in, in history. They're not 
they don't even intend to be historical. They're interested in metaphysics. They're interested in the ethereal realms, in the land of Barbello. They're interested in emanations. They're interested in the luminaries and the luminous clouds that come from the ethereal plane of higher consciousness. That's what they're interested in. But see, the gospel authors are interested in history. Everything they write is, they intend to pass on what happened. And so, for example, Luke says this in the beginning of his, his gospel. I had to find some way of, of getting Luke in here, otherwise it wouldn't have felt like a sermon. <laughs> Luke tells his reader, Theophilus, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now look at this isn't something that happened long, long ago and far, far away, a once-upon-a-time story. Luke is saying, this is stuff that happened recently. It's been fulfilled among us. And as, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses. So he's saying, we have the oral tradition that goes back to the eyewitnesses. Luke himself is not an eyewitness, but he knows the ones who are, and the tradition's been passed on, and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, he did his historical research. He writes like a historian. I've investigated everything from the start. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty or the truth of the things you have been taught. The gospel authors write, and their intention is to communicate truth, to convince people of the truth. This is what happened, and they want to tell that story. That puts them in an entirely different category than the Gnostic Gospels. To compare the Gnostic Gospels and the canonical Gospels is like comparing a professional historian with some wacko neo-Nazi track. Or, or, or a comic book or something of the sort. You're comparing apples with oranges. And point number four, the Gnostic Gospels, and this is most important, the Gnostic Gospels fail standard historiographical tests. Uh, critical historians have a set of tests that they subject every ancient document to to discern the degree to which we can trust it to communicate history. The Gnostic Gospels give us no reason to believe that the historical trustworthy. They don't pass the historiographical tests. Whereas the canonical Gospels, I would argue, pass these tests, all of them, with flying colors. Just to give you a little snippet of what I'm talking about. The canonical Gospels are written by people who are close to the event in time and close to the event that they're recording in place. They're in that location. And they're written by people who are in a position to know. That's not true of the Gnostic Gospels. They're written in a hostile environment where there are authorities who would want to disprove their story if their story was disprovable. And their story would have been disprovable if what they were saying was false. But it wasn't disproven because it wasn't disprovable because the story isn't false. Was that confusing enough for you? I hope so. That can't be said of the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, the, 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 the canonical Gospels are all consistent with archaeology. They accurately reflect the first century environment they're talking about insofar as we can discern it archaeologically. They include superfluous details, which is evidence of eyewitness testimony. Uh, uh, whenever historians find details that don't really contribute to the storyline, they're sort of incidental to the storyline, that's one evidence that we're dealing here with, uh, with, with eyewitness testimony. That is true of the canonical Gospels. Even more importantly, they include counterproductive material. Material that, if they were making a story up, they'd want to edit out. For example, when you read legends in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, legends about Jesus, the disciples are all larger than life. They all have super faith. They all have super power. Peter can fly around Jerusalem. That's in one of these, these accounts. Um, and, and that's what you expect of legends. But the Gospels portray the disciples as being rather dull. Uh, they, they, they just don't get it. They're kind of stupid. They're spiritually, you know, not on board, and Jesus has to frustratingly deal with them. 
Because that's the way people really are. The, 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 the gospel stories ring true to life. The central message of the gospels is completely antithetical to what the culture would expect. The idea of God becoming a man and that Jesus dies on a cross. This is antithetical to what Jews expected a Messiah to be. If the gospel authors were for any reason trying to make up a story, this is not the kind of thing that they would say. You got women discovering the tomb being empty. And women in first century Jewish culture had no credibility uh, uh, whatsoever. The only purpose they could have had for including women in their narrative is because that is the way it actually happened in history. The gospel authors have no motive to lie. Uh, they, they have nothing to gain and everything to lose. And there's not enough time for a legend. Legends usually take generations, if not centuries, to evolve. But here, right on top of the event, Jesus dying and rising from the dead, we have this proclamation. You don't have enough time for a legend. But even if you had enough time, you still wouldn't have a very good explanation because this is the wrong environment for a legend. Legends have to be birthed in, in environments that are conducive for them. But first century Judaism, these folks hated legends. That's what pagans did. They certainly hated legends about a man being divine. So you don't have enough time for a legend to develop, and you don't have the right conditions for a legend to develop. And it, so if it's not a lie and it's not a legend, that leaves you with one alternative, and that is that it's telling the truth. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. My point here is this. There's no comparison on a, on a strictly historical basis, no comparison between the New Testament writings and the Gnostic Gospels. We're given every reason we could possibly be given on a, on a strictly historical basis to accept the validity of the canonical Gospels and no reason at all given to accept the Gnostic Gospels. So I conclude... These things don't offer us any new insights. It's just the same old nonsense that the early church fathers dealt with 1,800 years ago. Now, having said all that, let's ask this question, and it gets into the meaning of the resurrection. Given all this evidence I just gave you, why then do some scholars and a lot of people in the culture nevertheless Go with the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas or, or, or what have you. Why is there this preference for these, these Gnostic works over the canonical works when all the evidence should go in the other direction? Why? It's not because of the evidence, because as I just showed you, all the evidence goes against that idea. The fundamental reason is because the story that's in the Gospel, the story of God becoming a human being, dying on a cross and rising from the dead, that is a story that a lot of people find hard to believe. Maybe some have other reasons for not wanting to believe it, like it would have some implications for their life, but I don't like to get ad hominem and go to motive, so let's just assume the best of everybody. They just find it hard to believe this, and I can understand that. You're being asked to believe that God, that there's a personal God who becomes a human being, dies on a cross, and rises from the dead. And so you can hear one of them saying, look at every dead person I've ever met. Uh, well, you don't go around introducing yourself to dead people, I suppose. But every dead person I've ever known uh, has stayed dead. You're asking me to overturn all of that because you say so. These gospels say so. And from the perspective of some of these people, even though there's such good reason to believe that the gospels are historically reliable, the claim that a man rose from the dead is so hard for them to believe that, it, that they allow it to overturn all that evidence. I submit to you a wiser procedure is to follow the evidence wherever it leads, even if it leads you to believe some things that ordinarily would be kind of hard to believe. I grant, I grant that it's hard to believe that a guy rose from the dead. I, 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 I'm a, as an honest human being, I got to tell you, that's a tough one. 
But having, if you look at the evidence objectively, as tough as it is to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I submit to you, if you're honest with the evidence, it's even harder to believe that he didn't rise from the dead. Because now you've got to say it's a lie or a legend, and neither of those hypotheses has any plausibility to it whatsoever. Follow the evidence, and it might lead you to some rather strange conclusions. The world might be a little stranger than you thought. Look it. This is what we do in science all the time. Some of you know that I and some friends of mine, we like to talk a lot about quantum physics and, 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 and uh, you know, just del delve into that realm. Well, here's something that's interesting. Uh, scientists all used to assume that light was a wave. And then in 1905, Einstein proved that the only way to really solve a certain paradox that was otherwise unsolvable, called the photoelectric effect, was to suppose that light was not just a wave, it was also a particle. It's not that it's not a wave, uh, it's just that it's also a particle. Light is both wave-like and particle-like. Now, we have no way of imagining something that is both a wave and a particle. And yet, the evidence forces us to that conclusion, and now everybody accepts that conclusion. Sometimes the evidence leads you into areas that suggest that the world is weirder than we previously thought. Here's something that's even weirder. I hope you're not getting bored. Am I boring you? Hang in there. I'll get to it here in a second. This is important stuff. We now know that uh, uh, entangled electrons, electrons that are around the same atom spinning in opposite directions, if you separate them, shoot them in opposite directions, no matter how far apart they are, what you do to one electron, you instantaneously do the other electron, even if they're separated by light years. And we have no way of explaining that. But in 1984, Alan Asmack proved that, in fact, that's the way this thing operates. Follow the evidence, and it may turn out that the world is a little bit stranger than we otherwise imagined. The same thing is true of the resurrection. I grant that it's a rather hard thing to believe that a man rose from the dead, but all the evidence indicates that he did, so go with the evidence. Jesus Christ is alive. Amen. Amen. <laughs> the way it is with the resurrection. Now look at it. Look at it, look at it. Is it really impossible. That is really that difficult to believe in miracles. If you open up your eyes, and the reason why it's hard to believe in miracles is because they're not usual, and it's easier to believe things that normally happen than things that are extraordinary. But, but look it, if you open your eyes and look around at this world, you'll find miracles all around you. Miracles all around you. I mean, even time and space, the infinitude of time, the weirdness of consciousness, there's, there's, there's miraculous stuff all around us. You just open up your eyes. Here's a miracle that happened to me this last week. This is my grandson, Saul. I'm a grandpa. I am a grandpa. Look at that beautiful kid. Ha! I'm a grandpa. Okay, now th th that's Saul. The hand there is my son-in-law, Halos. He was a beaming, proud father. And Thursday night, 641, uh, this beautiful uh, child, they named him Saul. This beautiful soul came into the world. And uh, 7 pounds, 10 ounces, 20.5 inches long, and he's wonderful. Here's my daughter with soul. My daughter's got soul. Isn't, that, isn't my daughter great, too? I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'll tell you. And then, then, then here's the best picture of all. Here, here's me uh, with, with soul. <laughs> I'm telling you, you guys, that kid is a barracuda, man. He grabs hold of uh, that pinky, and he just would not let go. Pray for my daughter. All right. It's, uh... <laughs> now, now, here's the thing. That, I submit to you, is every bit of, a, 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 as much a miracle as the resurrection. It's just that we're used to babies being born. If you had never heard of a baby being conceived and born in this world, it would, it would strike you as being as, as incredible as the claim that someone rose from the dead. Uh, let's do a little pretend thing here. Pretend like 
we were the first human beings ever created. That God, instead of just creating a man and a woman, he created a whole race of people instantaneously, fully grown, here we are. And so we're in the Garden of Eden, and we're brand new people with built-in memories. All right, so here we are. Work with me here. Um, and, okay, so we're, we're, we're all innocent, you know, whatever, and so none of us have ever heard of sex, and none of us have ever seen uh, uh, a pre pregnancy, and so obviously none of us have ever seen a child being born. Now, it happens that two people, uh, you know, fall in love, and they get married, and then they find out what certain things are created for, and they, they share love together. Several months later, the girl starts to put on weight. Now, they wouldn't make the connection that that, that led to this. For all I know, that was just something that God gave him as a gift. And now, all of a sudden, she's putting on weight. The husband goes, honey, you got to back off the tacos a little bit here. You're, you know. And she's like, I'm not eating anything. Something's, although I do crave chocolate, but, but I, 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 there's something odd going on here. And then, several months later, try to enter into this. You, you've never heard of this before. A baby comes out of the woman. A human, a human being comes out of this woman. I, that would just blow people's minds. What on earth is going on? <laughs> and if you weren't there to witness it, if you heard it second or third hand, it would be hard for you to believe. Joe comes up to you, you know, he says, hey, did you hear about what happened to Sue? Yeah, her and Charlie got married, and they found out what certain things were created for, and a little bit while later, she starts getting a big tummy, and then a human being came out. The guy would go, uh, did I say his name was Joe? Whatever. Uh, Joe would go, no, wh what? Are you... A human being, yeah, the, a human being was being formed in her and grew and grew and grew and then came out of her. And the first question Joe would ask would, would, would be, where? Uh, where? <laughs> well, it came out there. And he'd go, no way. Uh, the plumbing doesn't allow for it. I mean, who, who designed this plumbing? It must have been a man. I mean, it's like, how, that's just a miracle. See, that would have the same impact on us then as the resurrection has now. It is a miracle. The, 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 the process of birth is a miracle. It's just that it's one that, 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 that we're used to. It's hard. It would be hard for Joe, if that's what his name was, to believe this story. But if he couldn't explain it away as a lie and he couldn't explain it away as a legend, well, then he'd have to say that it must be true. And it just turns out the world is a good bit stranger and more beautiful than he had previously realized. That's how it is with the resurrection. We are used to people dying and staying dead. This is our normal. But if we follow the evidence, it turns out that that is not always the normal. It can happen in some situations, one in particular, that a man rises from the dead. And what that reveals to us, if we just follow the evidence, is that the world is a good bit stranger and more beautiful than we otherwise thought. But, you know, births tell us that, and quantum physics tells us that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that. What the resurrection shows us, reveals to us, is that this life that we're right now in, what we call normal, isn't the whole show. This thing that we call normal, this life right now, isn't the whole of history. Uh, rather, this is just a preparation stage for something else that is coming. This is the warm-up uh, period for, 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 for what is coming. This is the growing period where we're being prepared for something else that is coming. In fact, if you think about it, we are right now sort of in the same situation that my grandson's soul was in three days ago. We are in the, in the embryonic stage of, of existence, of a life that will go on forever and ever. Um, and, and, and follow this analogy. In the same way that soul, my, my son, grandson's soul, he would experience the birth process as a dying process. The only world he's ever known is the world inside the womb, and it's a nice, safe, warm world, and his needs are met there. That's the only reality he knows. 
And then all of a sudden, it starts closing in on him, and now he's got to be pushed through this very narrow uh, canal, and, and that's not a pleasant experience. It's kind of a painful thing. That would be, if, if he had an awareness of it, it would be a terrifying, painful experience. That's why they come out with his head was all you know, pointed like that. Uh, you know, imagine his head's getting crushed in here. That can't be pleasant. Uh, but it's what you have to go through to be born into this world. Now that soul is born into this world. When he, when, he, when he grows up and looks back at his time in the womb, he'll understand that he wasn't created to stay there. He was created to be out here. And now that he's born, he can, he can run like he was supposed to run. That, run. That's why he had legs, but he couldn't use the legs in the womb. And he can see with his eyes uh, because that's what eyes are for, but he couldn't do that in the womb. And he can use his lungs. That's what lungs are for, but he couldn't do that in the womb. And now he's able to relate to people and experience love, and, but he couldn't do that while he was in the isolation of the womb. The womb was a preparation stage for right now. He had to go through a death process to get here, but now that he's here, he looks back on the womb life and sees it as all too confining. We are in just that same situation. It's just that we haven't gone through the birth process yet. Death to us is usually kind of scary because we have never been on the other side. And it's usually rather unpleasant, sometimes rather painful. But on some level, let's get honest here, we all know, we all know that we're not created to stay in this stage. We all know on some level that there are aspects of our being that just aren't totally at home here. Uh, we all know on some level that we've got longings that are, not that are not satisfied in this world and cannot be satisfied in this world. We, we all know on some level that life is meant to be more than this. We're never as passionate as we know we ought to be. We never laugh as hard and as consistently as, as we know we could. We never are, are fully alive and fully awake as we know we ought to be. We never love with all the capacity that we know on some level that we have. Life isn't all right here and now what we at some level know life is supposed to be. We've got a dream, if you will, of, of, of a different kind of a world, and it haunts us. It indicts us. It makes this world feel kind of suffocating, often rather painful. And all that dream and all those hopes point beyond the grave to something else. When Jesus rises from the dead, he tells us what that something else is. He tells us who that something else is. When Jesus comes up out of the grave, what he declares is that, you know what? Life is a whole lot bigger and more beautiful and stranger than you ever imagined. Because life is about God having a plan for your life that does not end with the grave. It goes on forever and ever. It goes on into eternity. Praise God. Amen. What the resurrection shows, as Paul said, is this. Though we, we are sown in the ground, though we die perishable, we will be raised imperishable. And there's a part of our inner spirit that says yes to that. Though we die in a corruptible state, we shall rise. Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren and, and, and sisters, the, the, the New Testament says. What happened to him will happen to all who say yes to him. And, and we die in a corruptible stage, but we'll be raised in an incorruptible way. We die in weakness, Paul says but we'll be raised in power. Uh, we die in dishonor. There's something ignoble about the dying process because we were never meant to go through that. Uh, we die in dishonor, but Paul says we shall be raised in honor, in glory. Uh, we, we, we die a natural death as a natural with a natural body, but we shall be raised. 
he says, with a spiritual nature. What the resurrection shows is that, is that life will conquer death. God's life conquers death, and God's love conquers all evil, and hope shall conquer despair, praise God. What the resurrection shows is that we're destined, God's plan is to destine us for a world where we really will live like we're supposed to live, and we'll laugh like we were always supposed to laugh, and we'll rejoice like God always wanted us to rejoice, and we'll love like God always wanted us to love. And what the resurrection shows is this. When we put on a body like his glorious body and we see him as he is and we reflect the glory of his light, when we put on that resurrected body and, and get out of this, this suffocating, sometimes pain-filled womb that we're in and are finally born into the creation that God always wanted the creation to be, it's called the kingdom of God. When that finally happens, praise God, then there'll be no more. This, 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 this glorified resurrected body will no longer have sickness. It'll have no pain. We're not going to be losing our hair. There aren't going to be any more back aches. The, the, the wrinkles aren't going to be there. Hallelujah. Uh, the aging process will be no more. And we put on that resurrected body and walk in the kingdom of God. Then the creation will be all that God wanted the creation to be, which means there'll be no more sickness, no more disease, no more deformity. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more bloodshed. Praise God. I long for that day. No more mindless wasting of life. Hallelujah. There'll be no more oppression. Satan will be defeated. The principalities and powers will be defeated. The demons will be defeated. There'll be no more hostility towards God. God will reign supreme. God's love shall define every square inch of the cosmos. There'll be no more tsunamis that kill people, hurricanes that kill people, earthquakes that kill people. No more AIDS, no more threat of birds, flu, no more malaria, no more cancer. He shall wipe away every tear from our eye and we'll walk in the joy and the love and the celebration of Jesus Christ. He is risen. That's what it means. What it means. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It is. See, as I said earlier, when, when, when you believe that, you can be and should be optimistic in all situations. This life here can sometimes really bite. I mean, really. But it changes everything when you, when you put it in the context of the resurrection. There's no shame that you have right now and pain that you have right now, sorrow, heartache that you have right now that is permanent. It's temporary if you know the person of Jesus Christ. And to believe in the resurrection means you understand that your labor is not in vain. You never pray a prayer that is in vain. You never live out a Christ-like self-sacrificial act of love that is in vain. It all comes back on you, praise God. It all comes back on you. So the only remaining question then is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You see, here's the thing. The reality is this. Uh, in this embryonic stage that we're in right now. This is, the gr this is the growing period for the kingdom. And as with a natural baby, what happens in the womb determines how you're born. So my question is this, will you be born alive in the kingdom or are you going to be stillborn? And that all hangs on one, uh, one other question and that is, do you know Jesus Christ? He is, to continue the analogy, the umbilical cord. The life of God being poured into us. And God wants to grow us to be kingdom people. Are you connected? Are you, are you a friend of God? Are you connected? And that's not just about knowing some information. That's about your heart. Is your heart surrendered to Jesus Christ? What God wants from you is a full surrender and a commitment to walk with him, to cultivate a relationship with God. And I want to close the service by giving everyone in this auditorium a chance to do that if you're not in that situation right now. Maybe you were at one time, but right now you're not walking with God. And this is the time to make a commitment. 
uh, where you just say, Lord, I'm going to surrender my life to you. It is that simple. It's not a magical formula, a little fire insurance thing. Like if I just pray this prayer, then it doesn't matter how I live or whatever. Uh, that's, that, that's a distortion of the gospel. But it's, a, it's like a marriage vow. You say, Lord, I will live for you. Would everyone close your eyes and kingdom people start praying? Because someone's life is about to change. And if you're here this morning and you're not living in a surrendered state to Jesus Christ, I want you just to make a commitment before God, just to seal this commitment. These little visible signs are important. And just raise your hand before God. And I'll just notice you, and I'm going to pray for you right where you're sitting. So just raise your hand very, very quickly here. Amen. I see that hand, that one, that one, that one. All over. Praise God. Kingdom people, just be praying that God would soften people's hearts. Over here to my left, a number of people, a number of people. And in the middle, oh, young man, I see. Oh, wonderful. You love Jesus? All right, that's wonderful. All over. That's good. Just surrender to God. You're saying, I'm going to commit to you. This isn't magic. It's a commitment. But see, this determines your resurrection. Over, over in the far corner, I see you, young man, and over there, and over there, and over there. Lord, take notice of all these. And Holy Spirit, will you now be working in their hearts to seal this commitment? Okay, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and we're going to all pray with you because this is about community. Uh, the Bible says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you shall be saved. You will enter into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So confess this with your mouth. Say it out loud. And we'll all join you in this. Just say, Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that you are God. And I confess, I have not lived reflecting that fact. I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I turn from my sin and surrender my life to you. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me, to cleanse me, and to live inside of me. And help me live for you the rest of my life, starting right now. Thank you, Lord, for loving me and for saving me. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Praise God. Praise God.